Hi, I'm Jonathan Groves, and welcome to the Cranmer Fellows Podcast. This is a podcast that explores pastoral ministry from an Anglican perspective. If you are a pastor, ministry leader, or an aspiring minister, I, along with my co-host, Matt Kennedy, pray that this podcast will help equip and encourage you in your ministry to Christ Church. This podcast is an arm of the pastoral training program, the Cranmer Fellowship, at Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York. Church of the Good Shepherd is a congregation committed to following the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing the good news of His life, death, and resurrection through the study, exposition, proclamation, and application of His Word, the Scriptures. If you would like more information about the Cranmer Fellowship, Church of the Good Shepherd, or if you want to reach out to us about this podcast, please do so by emailing us at cranmerfellowship.com at gmail.com. Now, let's get to today's episode. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for bringing us all here. We ask that you would give us grace as we hear your word. Um, Help us to believe what you have to say, and I pray that all that I say from this pulpit will bring glory to your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Um, so like I said, we're back in Acts, and you, you, uh, you might not remember uh, where we left off, what had been happening in Acts when we left off there. If, uh, if you don't remember, I, uh, you can cheer up because I'll help you remember. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. Now, they don't, they don't call it the first missionary journey. They don't know how many missionary journeys they're going to have, but that's what we call it. It's the first missionary journey. And they have uh, preached their way through the island of Cyprus and then across the, the sea to Perga in southern Turkey and then over a mountain pass to the region of Galatia. If you've read the book to Gal- the letter to the Galatians, that's a region, a bunch of churches in Galatia that Paul was writing to. Uh, now, now, we know the pattern. We know how Paul and Barnabas went about doing what they went about doing. They would go into a city or a town, and when the Sabbath rolled around, they would head over to the local synagogue. And, and Paul must have been wearing something. We don't know exactly what it was, some kind of tell. Must have been wearing something indicating he's a ra- that he's a rabbi. We have callers in our day. They must have had something back then. But, but the synagogue rulers, when they noticed a visiting, a visiting rabbi, they would customarily ask that visiting rabbi, uh, do you have a word of encouragement, some kind of exhortation that, you, that you'd like to give us? And, and of course, Paul would say, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. And he would, uh, then he would get up and he would preach about, about Jesus, showing from the Old Testament that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and that in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, he fulfilled all the promises of God. Um, and that he brings forgiveness to everyone who believes. And after that, every Jew in the synagogue who believed, uh, they, would, they would leave the synagogue if the synagogue wasn't converted as a whole, and that would become the basis of the, the church, the new church in that particular city. Um, and then they would begin reaching out to, out to the Gentiles. So far in, in Galatia, uh, they have planted a church in Antioch and in Iconium. And now they're in, they're in Lystra. Now that's, that's as short a summary as I can, as I can manage to give, but you need to know, uh, along the way, as they've been going through, through Galatia in particular, Paul and Barnabas have made people 
very angry. A lot of people very angry. Paul seems to have that effect on people. I'm not sure why, but people were angry at Paul, and, and we'll learn about why, more about why in a minute. Now, there may not have been a synagogue in, in Lystra, because Luke doesn't tell us anything about a synagogue in Lystra, and Luke just has Paul preaching there beginning in verse 8 uh, to what seems like a crowd of, of, of Gentiles. And there's a man there in the crowd listening, and he has been lame since he was born. And Paul looks at him and sees, almost, we can say for sure, because the Holy Spirit imparts this knowledge to him, Paul looks at this man and he sees that, that he has the faith to be, to be healed, which is remarkable if he is a, a, a Gentile. He's never heard of Jesus before, but in the course of Paul's sermon, he, he's come to trust that Jesus has the authority and the power and that he has the goodness uh, to, to help him. And so Paul says, stand upright on your feet. And, and the man stands upright on his feet and, and he starts walking around and everyone's shocked and amazed and uh, they've known him all their lives. They've never seen him walk around. They've know he, they know he can't walk around, but here he is walking around. So like I said, the, the man's probably a Gentile and probably the crowd is a crowd of Gentiles, pagans. And so uh, they decide talking in their own language, that Paul must be Hermes because he's the talker. He's talking a lot, and, and Hermes is the messenger god. And they decide that, that Barnabas, the silent one, is probably Zeus because if you're quiet, you must be in charge. So he's Zeus. And, and so the priest of Zeus um, shows up, and, and they all have the intention of sacrificing oxen to these two gods who've shown up in, the midst, in their midst. Now, there's more to it, and that's, that's the short uh, again, a shortened summary of what's going on in Lystra. Uh, but Paul and Barnabas eventually realize what's happening. They tear their robes, which is what you do if you were a Jew and you heard blasphemy. You'd tear your robe open. And they, they run into the crowds and they say, there's only one God and, and we're not him. Uh, only one God. Turn from your idols, which are, which, are, which are nothing, and you need to worship the true, true and living God. It, it took everything they had, a lot of effort. But Luke says... In verse 18, they, they barely managed to restrain them from offering sacrifices to them. Now, uh, between verse 18 and verse 19, there is a space of time. We don't know how long. Could be days, could be weeks, maybe even a, a month or so, but there's a space of time there between verses 18 and 19. And after that space of time has ended, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, that's a lot of stuff packed into, into one verse. Who, who are these Jews to begin with, and what, what are they so upset about? Uh, well, we, we know where they're from, and that helps. They're from Antioch and Iconium. And that helps because Luke has already given us some idea about why they're angry enough to track Paul and Barnabas down from town to town. Uh, back in Antioch, uh, Paul and Barnabas had been there for one Sabbath, and it was the second Sabbath, and Paul was, was going to preach again. And then all these Gentiles start coming into the synagogue. These pagans start coming to hear Paul preach. And Luke tells us that when that happened... Well, I'll read it to you. When the Jews saw the crowds, 
they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, the, the jealousy here isn't the sort of thing you feel when someone you want to be with decides that, that he or she wants to be with somebody else. That's not what's going on here. The word is zealous. And as I said, when we looked at this passage, it probably should have been translated zeal rather than, than, than jealousy. Because, because the Jews see these pagans who, who eat and drink revolting, unclean things, who, who do wicked licentious things in their pagan temples where they, where they worship demons. And, and then they hear Paul tell them, you, you don't need to be circumcised or, or to keep the dietary laws. Just confess your, your sins, turn from your idols, trust in Jesus, and the kingdom of God is for you. And I think that's when the zeal began to break out. It's like when when Jesus sees Matthew sitting behind his, his tax collector's booth, because he's a tax collector, uh, and, and he says to Matthew, follow me, and then Jesus, or excuse me, Matthew, gets up and leaves his booth and follows Jesus, and then that night, apparently that night, Jesus goes to Matthew's house for this feast that he's, he's, he's held in Jesus' honor. And since tax collectors are, are Jews who collect taxes from other Jews for the Romans, and since they charge you far more than you actually owe in taxes so they can get rich themselves, and since if you don't cooperate, they can use whatever authority they have to force you to cooperate, to take your stuff by force, because of all that, Matthew doesn't have very many respectable friends. He has, he has, uh, Matthew has like, friends a lot like himself. He doesn't have any of the good people as his friends. He has all the bad people as his friends. So there's Jesus eating with all these unjust oppressors of the poor, vile men. And I think that's when zeal, for many of the same reasons, begins to consume the Pharisees. Zeal for the law. Zeal for righteousness. Zeal for the purity of Israel. How can you, how can you share the table with these people? And you remember maybe what Jesus says in response to that. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus, Jesus wasn't just hanging out with Matthew as if nothing's wrong with Matthew. He's a doctor, and Matthew's heart and his soul are sick. But it, but it wasn't just Matthew. The, the Pharisees were sick too. They have the we're good people disease. The we're good people disease sends more people to hell than any other disease there is. Because if you think that you're, you're a good person, if you think you're healthy, you won't go looking for the doctor. And the Pharisees didn't. Now that same sickness, I think, is probably at work in Antioch. Paul invites uh, wicked, vile, pagan Gentiles into the kingdom of God as if they're circumcised. All they've got to do is trust in this, in this Galilean and everything's forgiven. He's offering to pagans for free, they must be thinking, the, 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 the Jews must be thinking, he's offering these pagans for free what we've worked our whole lives to earn. That, that's why they chase Paul and, and Barnabas down. Uh, zeal for the law, zeal for the purity of Israel, zeal for righteousness. But, but of course, they, they really, they hadn't earned anything. They, 
That's what they've missed. And they, and they keep missing it. You don't want to miss it like they missed it. When, when the pervert or the murderer or the, the greedy CEO comes to Jesus and he's forgiven or, or she's, she's forgiven for free at no cost, at least to them. And there's a cost to it, but Jesus paid it. That, that's, the same, that's the same thing you got for free at no cost. It's no good thinking it's unfair for, for them to get in. It, it's unfair for you to get in too. That's, if you go to heaven, if, hopefully you won't go today, but if you, when you go to heaven, you're not going to hear any fairness talk. No one's going to be talking about what's fair and what's not fair because no one's there because of fairness. Everyone's there because of grace. Now, so these, these, these people are zealous for the law. They're zealous for righteousness. They chase Paul and Barnabas down to, to, to Lystra. But what about these crowds that they persuade? They're probably, as I said, said a minute ago, Gentiles, since there doesn't seem to be a big Jewish uh, crowd or community there. So how do these Jews who are angry, angry about Paul offering forgiveness to Gentiles, how do they persuade Gentiles to stone Paul? Well, I think they've got a lot of interests in common. Uh, you know, what happens, uh, what happens to, if, if a lot of pagans in Lystra uh, suddenly begin to believe in Jesus? What happens to Lystra? Well, uh, that will mean that, uh, that a lot of pagans, once pagans, stop offering stuff to the pagan gods and the pagan temples. And, and if, if you're a pagan yourself and, and you really believe that the gods protect your city and, and provide for the prosperity and the welfare of, of, of your city, when people stop offering them stuff, that's an existential threat. Uh, if the gods take offense, which they, 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 they're, they're very uh, testy, if the gods take offense, who knows what they'll do? And there's an economic cost. The temples will, will lose revenue from offerings. And, and if you're one of those people, and there were a lot of them actually, who sell those little statues of Zeus or Aphrodite or, or whatever, whoever it is, you take a little, you're selling little gods at the market, well, you're going to take a hit financially. People aren't going to be buying as many of those things. So I'll bet... The, the Jews from Antioch and from Iconium lay out all these things for the leading pagans in, in Lystra, and, and there they, then they, they have got their mob. They have their, their crowd. And so there's, there's Paul. He's, he, he's minding his own business. He's just doing exactly what Jesus told him to do. He's not doing anything bad. He's there planning a church in Lystra just like he's been called to do. And, and, and suddenly... Without warning, everything comes crashing down. Sometimes happens like that. Uh, so this crowd of people busts into wherever Paul happens to be. We don't know where he is. Uh, they, they seize him, and they force him along uh, to some street or some alley somewhere, and they, they throw him down, and uh, they start hurling stones at his head. I wonder at this point whether memories of, of Stephen flash through uh, Paul's mind as the stones crashed into his body. It, it must have been a, a nightmare of, of pain and terror. Stoning is a, a violent, violent thing. 
We don't know how long it went on, but it ended, for Paul anyway, when he lost consciousness. That's, that's probably why the crowd assumed he was dead. Now, assuming he was dead, and, and if you live in Lystra, you don't, you don't want a rotting uh, corpse in the middle of town, so they, they, drag, him, they drag him outside the city and, and leave him there for, uh, for the vultures. But then the disciples gathered around him, and he rose up, and he entered the city. Now, some people reading this, they see, they see a miracle here. They say, well, well, Jesus must have raised Paul from the dead like he did Lazarus, and by like he did the, the widow's son. But when uh, Luke said, back up in verse 19, they were supposing that he was dead, the implication is that they were supposing wrongly. They made the wrong assumption. He, he was just knocked out, or he was unconscious. He wasn't, he wasn't dead. It, it, the whole thing must have happened so fast. Uh, the mob breaking in suddenly, grabbing Paul, dragging him away, with, with such violence and, and such force that, that nobody's able to, to step in or intervene. And, and there would have been some there who would have wanted to step in and intervene. You see the disciples mentioned. Now, you remember, Paul arrived in Lystra. He didn't have a lot of disciples. He didn't have, he just, there were no disciples with him. It was, it was Paul and, and Barnabas. But, but there are disciples now. Uh, they must have been made, these disciples must have been made, in the space between verse 18 and, and, and verse 19. Uh, the man who Paul healed, I'll bet he's one of these disciples. Uh, later in Acts, we're going to learn that Timothy is from Lystra. That's his hometown. Maybe he's one of these, one of these disciples who's, who surrounds or gathers around Paul. If so, he's, he's very young. He's only a teenager at this point. Uh, Timothy's mother and his, his grandmother. Uh, Paul tells us in one of his, two of his letters that they're, uh, they're there. They're disciples. They're believers. Barnabas is, is definitely there. As soon as the, the mob clears out, these, these disciples gather around Paul. They may think he's dead too, but uh, don't know how long it took, but he, he comes too. He's got to be in terrible pain. Uh, but somehow he, he gets up. I'm sure they help him up, and I'm sure they, uh, they, they, they lift him up, and they help him walk, and he walks back to the city. And you might think, why, why would you go back to the city? But it, it, it's not that difficult to figure out. The disciples are probably thinking, we want to get him hidden away, some safe house where he can be patched up and, 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 and rest and, and, and recover. But then, but then you read, on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to, to Derby. Not, not the next week or next month, the next day. It takes me, it takes me a whole Monday to recover from, just from Sunday. I'm not rushing off anywhere, but he just, Paul's just been stoned almost to death and he's, he's got this incredibly violent experience and he's, he's bruised and he's bloodied and he's probably in a lot of pain. And Derby is, is three miles southeast from, from Lystra. That's, Maybe Paul's thinking, I've got to get out of here because I'm putting the disciples in danger. If people figure out I'm, I'm alive and not dead, then the people I'm with, they're going to be in trouble. So I better get out of here. Maybe that's, maybe that's the, the urgency. Maybe that's, maybe that's the reason they get out of town. Whatever the case, put yourself in Paul's place. The, the, I wish you had a map. I should have put this on the bulletin, but I didn't. The road, the road from Lystra 
where they are, to Derby, also leads from Derby to Antioch in Syria. And maybe you remember what Antioch in Syria is. That's home. That's where they left from, from in the first place. What are you going to do if you're Paul? You're headed down that road. You're coming up to Derby, but you can, see, you can just keep going down that road. You've been through some serious, serious trauma. You're almost murdered. Your, your face is probably beat to a pulp. What do you do? Well, when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So they get to Derby, and Paul decides he's going to preach. He's, I'm, going to, I'm going to preach in the synagogue or wherever it is. And so he does, and he makes disciples there. But then he, he's still got no intention of going home. He turns around and heads back to Lystra. That's where the people who stoned him live. And then after he goes to Lystra, he goes to Iconium and Antioch of Pisidia. Not the same home, not Antioch, the home, the other Antioch, where the people who persuaded the people who stoned him live. Would you do this? Would, would, again, it would have been so easy to just pass right through Derby and go home. Nobody would have blamed Paul at all for doing that. But doubling back and going to Lystra and those other places, I, I, honest, if I'm honest with myself, I can't imagine that I would do that. Hopefully I would, but I can't imagine that I would. I, 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 um, I interned at the Falls Church in, in Northern Virginia. It's a very large Anglican church. Uh, thousands of people go to it. Um, and I, as part of my internship, I was, I was tasked with preaching uh, twice a semester at the 8 a.m. service. The, the, Dr. Yates, who's a pastor there, wouldn't let me preach at the main service because there are too many people. So you can preach at the 8 o'clock service where there aren't lots of people and I'm not going to lose a lot of congregants. So that's what I did. And, and this one time, I, was, I prepared uh, a sermon and I was done early Saturday evening. And so I, Ann and I decided to go out, go out to eat. And we both love sushi. And there's a great sushi place in uh, Old Town, Alexandria. So we headed out to get some sushi. And we came back early so I could sleep and get, be ready for, for Sunday morning. Well, it turns out sushi was a bad choice. Um, around, uh, around midnight, I woke up and I was very sick. And I'll spare you the details about what kind of sickness I had, but I'm sure you can imagine. I was sick all night and it wasn't over, uh, even in the morning. So at around 6 a.m., I thought, okay, I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to call my pastoral supervisor and tell him what's going on. So I, I called my pastoral supervisor and told him what, what's going on. I said, I, I've got some kind of sickness. I've been up all night. He says, I think you should come in. I, I think you should come in and see how you feel when you get here. I said, I can't do that. And he, he said, well, uh, we're in about two hours. We're going to have a, a congregation here. Who's going to feed them? And, and now I was mad. <laughs> this is absurd. I mean, uh, what's going on? But, but I will say the word, those words, who's going to feed them, that, those, those hit me. Uh, later, I was told, and this may be legend, I think it's probably legend, I don't know, but I was told that the rector, uh, uh, Dr. John Yates, um, had food poisoning one Sunday, and so he took a bucket with him up to the pulpit so he could preach. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, that's the kind of atmosphere that was there. So, so I, I, I told my supervisor, finally, I drew the line, I said, I drew my safe boundaries, I said, I'm, not, I'm just not coming in. And, and I regret that decision 
uh, to this day. I mean, at the time I thought, and, and it's right, I, I thought this is ridiculous, and it was ridiculous. I thought this is absurd, and it was a little absurd. Someone can just take an old sermon and preach, and preach the old sermon, and that is ultimately what happened. But the thing is, and this is what got my supervisor so, uh, I guess, upset, is, is that the, the business of the gospel is not casual. It's life and death. I know it doesn't seem like it because we're all used to it. We're here every Sunday, but the, but, but, but the scriptures and the, and the words of the sermon and the wine and the bread, they're instruments of life. Jesus uses them to heal you. Now, I think out of all the people here, uh, maybe uh, mothers of young children can understand this whole principle better than, better than anyone else. I can remember going out of town when we had just two kids, three kids maybe, and they're all little. They can't take care of themselves at all. I remember going out of town one time, and then it, almost as soon as the plane took off, Anne gets sick, really sick, like so sick she, she's kind of like I was the night before I, uh, had, I had to preach. But you know what? If you've got three little kids running around, what can you do? It, it, it doesn't matter. So... So she had to get up out of bed and feed them and put clothes on them and make sure the little humans didn't die. And she did. And, and nothing could have kept her from doing that. Because they're her kids and she, she loves them. I think that's the way Paul feels about the churches in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. They're, they're, they're babies. These are very new, new congregations, newly born Christians in each of them. And, and they're surrounded by people who hate them and, and want, <laughs> almost try to kill Paul. He, he can, how, how could he possibly just go home? Now, if you think about your own ministry, whatever it is, whatever, whoever you are, if you're a believer, you have some kind of ministry somewhere, maybe it's at home with your own kids, whatever it is. Think about whatever that is. Jesus appointed you to that. And you've, you've got people who depend on you. Now, don't mishear me. Okay, so if you're thinking, oh man, last Sunday I was sick and I didn't show up for Sunday school, so now, no. If you are sick or you're throwing up or whatever, stay home. But, but what I'm trying to get at is that if you've got into your head something like this thought, it's just church. It doesn't really matter whether I do this thing or not. I, I, I encourage you to rethink that thought. Church is never just church. It's the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's the body of Christ. And you're his minister. Whatever thing you do. So, so Paul and Barnabas, they, they go back. And they strengthen the souls of the disciples and encourage them to continue in the faith. That probably means they go back and they teach more and they preach more and pray, pray with the, these people more and worship with them more. That, the sort of thing that good pastors do with people who are new and tender and easily discouraged. And, and he tells them, and it's an, it's an important thing to say. That people don't say it enough. That through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I, uh, had, this, I had this basketball coach in, in high school and... We had to run, I think, four miles, maybe three, every morning before, before school. So we had to get there earlier than anyone else. And there was this route 
route, route, whatever, around the neighborhood, around the school that he'd marked out for that four-mile length. I hated running. I still hate running. And, and the coach himself, let's try to find a nice way to say that. He, let's just say he wasn't concerned with physical fitness for himself at all. He's, he, was, he, was, he was not a fit person. Uh, but he would drive around in, in this air-conditioned van. It's very, South Texas, it's hot in the mornings, even 6 a.m. But he would drive around in this air-conditioned van, drinking his coffee, shadowing us as, as, as we ran. And every five minutes or so, he'd drive up beside you and yell out the window, What's wrong with you, you weasel? He called all of us weasels. He loved to call us weasels. Man up, he'd say. You're, you're running like a little girl. You could say that back then and not get in trouble. But he said he would say that kind of thing. And, so, and, and it was unpleasant, let's put it that way, to run, uh, to run the, the route. He'd say, you can't, you, if you're running, you, you, are, you cannot be on my team if you keep running like, like you're running. I, I developed a deep dislike for this particular coach because that's what he would basically do. He would just sit around eating and drinking coffee and yelling at us. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to be on this team after that. And now, here's Paul. His body's broken. His, he's bloodied. He's wounded. He's, he's been pummeled with stones almost to death. If you, if you were there in Lystra, you're one of the disciples in Lystra, you saw that happen to him. You saw him almost die and you see him leave the next morning, you're probably thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to see this guy again. He's, he's not coming back. But then he came back. All the city wants him dead, but he came back. And he's worried. He's worried about you. <laughs> not, not himself. He's worried about how you're doing. So, so when, when Paul says... Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I, I can hear him. I, I, I would run the four miles behind him. Because, because, because he's, he's come back. And, and his body, his body bears witness to the reality of what he preaches and who he follows. If Paul had not seen Jesus risen, with the nail marks in his hands and his, and his feet on the road to Damascus, if, if this Jesus had not taken hold of Paul's heart and mind and soul, if all that stuff about the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and being raised from the dead on the last day and the new heaven and new earth, if all that, that was just some story that Paul made up, would he have come back? But he's back. Through many tribulations. And of course, that's true. When you, when you turned from your old idols, whatever they were, and started to serve the living God, the angels in heaven, they rejoiced. But, but hell was enraged, and it still is. The, the, the demons you used to serve hate you. They hate Paul. They want him dead. They hate the disciples there in Lystra and elsewhere uh, who turned from them to Jesus. When, when you refuse to, to bow to the gods of this age and their flags and their buttons and their, and their pronouns, you feel the wrath of hell. 
And when you do, and, and when people revile you and call you all kinds of horrible things because of Jesus, God, God is blessing you. Your reward in heaven is great. That's how, that's how they treated the prophets. So be bold and be courageous and speak the truth and love the church and forgive your attackers and endure suffering because through many tribulations you must come into the kingdom of God. Put no confidence in your flesh or anything else in the world because all of that's passing away, but Jesus and his word stands forever. And he is your comfort and he's your hope and he's your solace and he's your strength. Now, when they had appointed leaders or elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Uh, Paul and, and Barnabas probably appoint Jewish disciples to be the elders. They would be familiar with the scriptures and able to teach and that sort of thing. Uh, if you have read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, you find their qualifications for elders slash overseers. Paul hadn't written those letters yet, but he's probably already using the qualifications that he later writes down. And basically, an elder must be faithful to Jesus and faithful to his wife and a good father to his children, if he has any, and, and not a drunk or unstable or angry or uh, pugilist of any of any any sort. He's got to be able to teach, and he's got to be able to rebuke false false teaching. So those qualifications all need to be there. But you'll notice here that they they also pray and fast and ask God to give them the wisdom to appoint the right people. And you should notice those two things working together: uh, objective considerations like qualifications and prayer. They're not enemies. Sometimes people put those things against each other. Well, I pray about it. I'm just going to wait and see what God tells me or whatever. Or, or I've thought about it. I'm making a wise decision, so I don't need to pray about it. No, they both go together. Both go together. Uh, so that having done all they can do for these churches, they've come back and strengthened them up. Paul and Barnabas commit them to the Lord. Uh, when, when your kids grow up, when your students graduate and move on, when, when I get old and I have to hand... Uh, this thing over to somebody else, those are going to be hard things to do. But, uh, but the reality is your children, um, your students, uh, whoever you've served, they've always really belonged to the Lord. And so you can trust, entrust him with them. And here, here especially that's the case because Paul and Barnabas commit them to Jesus in whom they had believed. These people aren't blind anymore. They're not deaf or lame anymore. They, they believe in Jesus, and that makes the committing easier. So they passed through Pisidia, and they came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken to the, to the, word, to the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had uh, fulfilled. Now, Paul, for some reason, didn't preach in Perga when they first passed through there, so he does it this time. Uh, then they sail from Italia to Antioch in Syria. That's a long trip on a slow boat. And I'll bet with Paul on the long trip in the, in the slow boat, none of the poor sailors got to mark themselves safe from hearing about Jesus. I'm sure they, they, all, they all heard about him. Uh, but when they finally arrived in Syria, uh, when they arrived, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. Notice that phrase, 
all that God had done with them. God had done all the things, but with them. That doesn't mean 50-50, God does his part, and Paul and Barnabas did their part, and together, by cooperation, they made it come to pass. That This means that, that God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God brought their, media, their, their mission to a successful end. God did all the things, but Paul and Barnabas were his instruments. He could have done that whole thing with somebody else. He could have done that whole thing himself by, by himself, but he chose Paul and Barnabas, and he did it with them. If you think about your own life, and the things you do here, and the things you do in your home, and the things you do at work or school, I, I, I'll bet you can think of many things and see many things that God is doing with you. And I think that puts an entirely uh, different light on the things themselves. Taking care of sick kids. Getting up at the crack of dawn to go to work for, for your family so they can eat. Or printing bulletins or teaching Sunday school or, or whatever, whatever it is. God does those things with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the example that you give to us in Paul of, of such love for his people, people that he brought to faith and uh, love for you, that he gave himself over to so much uh, pain and difficulty. We ask you to give us that same courage and, and love so that we're able to do that for those who we serve. Um, we ask you for forgiveness for those times when we, when we haven't, when we've been selfish and set our own needs above others. Um, we ask, Lord, that you would give us grace as we go out of this building today um, to share the gospel and that you might bring people to know and love Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.